Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. That's the text this morning. Again, the title of the message is Trusting God Through Dark Providence. Trusting God Through Dark Providence. And I want to begin this morning by saying a few things about God's sovereignty and providence. Over and over and over again, we are confronted with the inescapable truth that believers are called to have a rock-solid confidence that God is in sovereign control of all things. Friends, the word sovereignty means that God is in control of all things, everywhere, at all times. Sovereignty is God's right and His power to do all that He decides to do. It's God's right and His power to do everything that He decides to do. Job speaks about God's sovereignty in Job chapter 42, verse 2, when he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is God's sovereignty. It's His power and His right to do everything that He has determined to do. But notice that nothing in that definition of sovereignty speaks to God's wisdom or His plans. Sovereignty is just right and power. God has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. When he decides to do a thing, he does it, and no one can stop him. No one can thwart his plan. No one can get in his way. No one can back him into a corner. No one can change his mind. No one can alter for a second his eternal will. That's sovereignty. Providence, on the other hand, includes what God's sovereignty does not. Providence is not a word that we use in our everyday vocabulary. As a matter of fact, providence is not even a word that we find in the Bible. But it is a word that has long been used by Christians to describe a very biblical concept. The word providence comes from the Latin word provideo. Pro before, video meaning to see providence. And it means to see before. But perhaps even a clearer way to think about God's providence is that God wisely sees to all that his power is able to do. You see, if God's sovereignty is his right and power to do what he decides to do, then God's providence is his wisdom to direct all things in complete alignment with his predetermined will. God's providence has been referred to as wise and purposeful sovereignty. Providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning that the plans of God, the sovereignty and the providence of God extend to every detail of your life and of my life. This means that we can have complete confidence that there are no accidents. Life is not a random set of events. We're not left to luck. There is a master plan and a master that is operating behind of every single one of life's circumstances, even those circumstances that are difficult. Even those circumstances that we would think about as maybe being under the umbrella of God's dark providence. Nothing happens outside of God's knowledge. Nothing happens outside of God's control. And nothing happens that is outside of God's sequence or plan. Therefore, you and I can know without a doubt that every circumstance that divinely and sovereignly comes into our lives was ordained by an omniscient, omnipotent, gracious God who loves you and cares for you beyond your wildest imagination. Fear and anxiety, my friends which troubling times, trying times, oftentimes bring to surface. Fear and anxiety are the result of a failure to rest in God's sovereign and providential purposes. God, just like a skilled pharmacist, mixes medicine. Our Heavenly Father mixes exactly the right measure of bitter things, sweet things, all for our good. Too much joy would intoxicate us. Too much misery would drive us to despair. Too much sorrow would absolutely crush and crumble us. Too much suffering would break our spirits. Too much pleasure would ruin us. Too much defeat would discourage us. Too much success would puff us up. Too much failure would keep us from doing anything. Too much criticism would harden us. Too much praise would exalt us. 
But our great God knows exactly what we need. His providence is wisely designed and sovereignly sent for our good. Again, even when that sovereign providence appears to be dark. Here's the reality, friends. We all struggle to believe two fundamental truths about God. First, we fail to believe that God is sovereignly in control of every single circumstance that comes to pass in my life and in your life. And secondly, we fail to believe that God cares for us and that He desires to be intimately involved in the circumstances that He ordains for us. Friends, I want to encourage you to learn to love and adore God's providence when times are easy and when times are difficult. May we learn to love and adore God's providence. When we don't trust in God's wise and sovereign providence, we tend to be riddled with fear, anxiety, and worry. Brothers and sisters, if you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word together. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and these are the words that he pens. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. As we jump into our text this morning, I want you to consider what it means to be anxious or worrisome. What does it mean to be anxious or worrisome? Well, the Greek word for anxious or worry in verse 25 is merimnao. Merimnao. And it's an interesting word. It carries with it the idea of being divided or pulled apart or being separated into pieces. You see, friends, that's exactly what worry and fear and anxiety do to us. It pulls us apart. What are some of the typical things that you and I worry about? I was thinking this week in my study, and I made a list of things that we commonly worry about, that we commonly fear, that we are commonly anxious for. This is not a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination. It includes some rather common things, but this list also includes some things that are very pertinent to our day today. Perhaps you might even see yourself somewhere in this list. We fear things like, what will tomorrow bring? What happens if my hours are cut? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I get sick? How am I going to pay all these bills? What happens if I can't leave my house? What if they cancel graduation? Will God really forgive me? What if the grocery store runs out of food? What if all my retirement savings is lost? What if they choose someone else over me? Will my children turn out right? Will they turn out godly? What if I can't have children? What if the hospitals get overloaded? How will I handle the stress of online classes now? 
What if I lose absolutely everything? Who will take care of my children if I can't? What if they put me to sleep and I don't wake up? What if we've only seen the beginning of the floor dropping out from under the economy? What if they run out of ventilators? What will happen if this candidate or that candidate wins? I mean, this just scratches the surface of our common everyday fears and concerns and worries. You're taking notes this morning. would encourage you to write this down. Number one in your outline is this. Fear is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness. Fear is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness. Without a doubt, there are times when each and every one of us are afraid. God wants us to turn to Him and to cling to Him when we find ourselves wrestling with fear. Now, oftentimes our fears are connected to the fact that we feel like we've lost control of the circumstances of our lives. When I feel like I'm not in control, that is oftentimes when fear surges to the surface. It's hard not to be in control or to feel like we're not in control and to have to trust that there is someone who is control. Friends, God isn't just in control, He's good. He's for us and He knows what is best for us, even when we do not know what is good for ourselves. Fear and anxiety are an indicator of wrong thinking. We will live in fear when we fail to apply the character of God and the promises of God to our everyday present circumstances. Let me rewind that statement. It's really important. We will live in fear when we fail to apply the character of God and the promises of God to our everyday circumstances. Let me give you just a few truths about our fear this morning. Write this down. A, fear is wrong thinking about our life's purpose. Fear is wrong thinking about our life's purpose. Find verse 25 there in your Bible. Matthew 6, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Fear is wrong thinking about your life's purpose. Now it's interesting to note here that the therefore in verse 25, that's the very word, the very first word that we see in verse 25, that therefore connects back to the preceding words of Jesus. If you're looking at your Bible there, just look back at the last section of Scripture. You'll see that Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, deal with the fact that we are to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The moth destroys and the thief breaks in and steals the treasures that we lay up here on earth. And so Jesus urges us, he encourages us, he challenges us to lay up treasures in heaven. And so the therefore here in verse 25 connects back to those preceding verses. In other words, fear and anxiety are not isolated. Jesus teaches us that fear and anxiety are the result of a misplaced treasure. It's a misplaced treasure. When we fix our hopes on the treasures of this world, we will most certainly fear the loss of those treasures. If your treasure is your job, then you will fear the loss of that treasure. If your treasure is your children's health or your health, then you will fear the loss of that treasure. If your treasure is connected to your retirement, then you will fear the loss of that earthly treasure. You see, friends, if we mistakenly think that our ultimate purpose is to protect our frail and temporary frames, the things of this earth that are here today and gone tomorrow, then we will be absolutely riddled with fear. Riddled with fear. Fear is wrong thinking about your life's purpose. Secondly, fear is wrong thinking about your place in God's plan. It's wrong thinking about your place in God's plan. Look back there at your Bible, verses 26 through 30. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, friends, what's going on here? Do you see what Jesus is telling us? The birds and the lilies, they have an absence of concern. And that absence of concern about the things of life teach us an absolutely huge lesson concerning our own reliance upon God. Jesus knows that the sparrows, they they don't engage in, in an agricultural process. They don't sow, they don't reap, but yet neither do they starve. It's important to note That though they neither sow nor reap, neither are they idle. Jesus is not encouraging us in this text to be lazy. He's not encouraging us to inactivity. Perhaps you have read the story of the ant in Proverbs chapter 6. The last thing that the Bible encourages us to do is to be lazy or to be inactive. I mean, think about it. Could anything be busier than the sparrow? The point that Jesus is making is that though the sparrows are in constant search for food, not a single one of them are suffering from hypertension. Not a single one of them. God takes care of them. And notice there in your Bible as well that Jesus doesn't say their heavenly Father feeds them. He says your heavenly Father feeds them. Did you catch that? The very Father in whom the anxious have ceased to put their trust provides even for the improvident birds. Your Father provides for them. Martin Luther once said, God makes the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. God makes the birds our schoolmasters and our teachers. He goes on to say, it's a great challenge to us that helpless sparrows should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you hear a sparrow, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he is saying, the Lord takes care of me. You see, God is both the cook and the host. Every day he feeds innumerable little little birds with his sovereign hand. We watch it daily. I mean, every time we we gaze out the window, every time we step out of our homes, we see God doing this daily. We watch it on a daily basis, and yet we still worry about the affairs of our lives. Perhaps you've heard the old conversation between the robin and the sparrow. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know, why these, ancient, these anxious human beings rush around and worry so? Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Friends, we do have a heavenly father that cares for us, that cares for you beyond your wildest imagination. And your present difficult circumstances, whatever they may be, are not an indication of a loss of that care. Jesus points first to the sparrow, and then he points to the lilies of the field. Look there in your Bible, find verse 28. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, the lilies of the field, those are common, ordinary wildflowers. There isn't necessarily anything that is special about them other than the fact that they make excellent fuel for the fire. But if you were able to zoom in on the petals of a lily, you would see an intricacy and a magnificence that would put Solomon's costly robes to shame. Though the common lilies don't labor and toil, they do show that God cares for and is concerned and is governing the everyday affairs of creation. The point that Jesus makes here, friends, is that you and I, who are made in God's image, are certainly not left out to dry. Not a one of us are left out to dry. God takes such great care of us, and we know that because we see how great God cares for the sparrow and the lilies of the field. 
Brothers and sisters, the sparrows and the lilies, I would submit to you, stand as a gentle rebuke for our anxious fretting. Look back at verse 27 for a second here. Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Not only do they not worry, not only are they not anxious, uh, but worrying and being anxious cannot add to the quality of your life. Neither can worrying and being fearful and being riddled with anxiety add to the span of your life. You see, even if we could eliminate or in some way ensure that everything that we worried about would never truly happen, it still would not prolong our lives for one second. Let me rewind that statement for a second here. Even if we could eliminate or if we could in some way ensure that absolutely everything that we worried about never truly came to pass, never truly happened, never truly confronted us, it still would not prolong our lives for a second. You can't can't add to your life by running around anxiously fretting about your circumstances. Not only will it not add to the quality of your life, but it'll take your eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Three, write this down if you're taking notes. Fear is wrong thinking about the character of God. Fear is wrong thinking about the character of God. I want to park here for a few minutes. Look at verses 31 and 32 in your Bible. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He doesn't know that you need some of them. He knows that you need them all. John MacArthur notes this. He says, Christians who believe that God can redeem them, break the shackles of Satan, take them from hell to heaven, put them into his kingdom, give them eternal life, what they fail to believe, is that God can get them through the next couple of days. We fail to believe that God can get us through the next couple of days. I mean, think about that, friends. We believe that God can save us, that he can redeem us, that he can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but we fail to believe that he can handle the next couple of days. What are we saying about God when we are fearful and when we worry? But we're calling his care, his concern, and his provision into question. We're calling his character into question. We're calling his promise into question. We're calling his concern into question. We're treating him who gives us life, breath, and being with suspicion, if not contempt. Now think about those disciples in Mark chapter 4, don't turn there. This will be a familiar, a familiar picture to you. It wasn't that long ago that we studied Mark's gospel. But I think about those, those disciples there in Mark chapter 4 who chastised Jesus when the storm rocked their little boat, when the storm waves crashed over their little lives. I mean, there they were. They were panic-stricken and riddled with fear. And so the disciples, they wake Jesus. They rustle Jesus to wake And they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You see, from the disciples' perspective, Jesus was unaware of their plight. Jesus had no idea what was going on in their little lives. He was absolutely oblivious to what was going on. And so they charge him with not caring for them. Do you not care that we are perishing? They thought that Jesus was oblivious to their misery, that he had forsaken them. Don't we often feel that way too in the middle of life's storms? We mistakenly conclude that we're all alone, that no one, not even God, knows what's happening, what's going on, or how we're feeling. God is somehow disconnected from our loss. Somehow God is disconnected and distant from our trial and our present suffering. Nothing could be further from the truth. God knows every wave that falls on you. And he is using each one for a very specific purpose. Friends, write this down. And if you don't get anything else from the message, here's the summary statement. When life seems and feels most out of control, 
it could never be more in control. When life seems, feels, or or appears like it is absolutely out of control, it could never be more in control than it is right in that moment. Friends, if our view of our circumstances is bigger, if our view of our circumstances weighs more than our view of God, then we will absolutely be riddled with fear day in and day out. Let me say that another way. If your God is smaller than the world that you live in and the events of your everyday life, then you'll be riddled with fear and anxiety. And so the question that I have for you is, how big is your God? How big is He? I think about the old children's song. It's got great theology in it. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. We don't believe that. We sing that heartily in times of ease. But the rubber meets the road in times of trial. Friends, we really learn what we believe. Our real and true theology surges to surface when we are forced to employ it. When we are in a set of circumstances, when we're in a situation, or when God's providence appears to be dark and we have to apply that theology, that's when we really find out what we believe. How big is your God? Is he bigger? Is he weightier than your view of your trials and circumstances? You see, worry and fear, anxiety... Those are practical atheism. At their core, worry, fear, and anxiety, that life is lived as if the promises of God were absolutely non-existent. Oswald Chambers once said, all of our fret and worry are caused by calculating without God. All of our fear, all of our worrying, all of our anxiety is the result of our calculating, thinking about life absent from God. Without God in the picture, without God in the equation, without His character, His nature, and His attributes, and His promises being factored into the equation. Unfortunately, when we face trials, we often seem to forget what we know to be true about God. We lose our confident trust in Him, and as a result, we feel defeated. We feel hopeless. Here's a helpful exercise, perhaps, for you. Think about this question. This might help to reorient your focus on God's character and on His promises. When I am fearful about, fill in the blank. When I am fearful about, I am disbelieving that God, fill in the blank. When I am fearful about, fill in the blank there, I am disbelieving that God, fill in the blank. That's a wonderful exercise. When we become fearful and anxious, we at least momentarily do not trust in God's wisdom, His power, or His goodness. We fear that God is not wise enough, strong enough, or even good enough to prevent whatever it is that we fear. Friends, the fearful mind, it parks in a lie. Just like a parking spot for a car, the fearful mind parks in a lie. It believes that it's all up to me to take care of this situation or this circumstance. I've got to take care of it all on my own. You see, when we distrust the promises of God, it's no wonder that we worry. It's no wonder we fear. Thinking that you have to bear the weight of the world all by yourself is an incredibly lonely place to be. David Pallison once said, when you're worrying, it's like being in a universe where no one else is home. It's just you and your struggle. Well, instead of parking your mind in a lie that your circumstances are somehow bigger than God can handle, friends, I want to encourage you to get a great big look at God. One of the old Puritans said one time, he said, for every look you take at yourself... Take 10 long stares at Christ. Let me modify that just a bit. For every look that you take of your circumstances, 
for every look that you take at your trials, for every look that you take at your suffering, take 10 long stares at Christ. Be reminded of his character and his promises. Sinclair Ferguson once said, it's only when we want to take our lives out of the Father's hand and have them under our own control that we find ourselves gripped with fear. The secret of freedom from anxiety, the secret of freedom from fear is an abandonment of your own plans. It's holding my life with a loose hand and acknowledging that, God, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. That though I only see a small picture of what you're doing, you see the entire portrait. From before the foundation of the world, you had a plan, and that plan is being sovereignly and providentially set into motion. Nothing is happening to me that is outside of that plan. I can trust you. I can rest in you. I can hope in you. I can confide in you. I can take refuge in you. Just like the sparrow, just like the lily of the field, you too will take care of me. Friends, we need to park our minds in a different parking spot. Instead of parking our minds in a lie that it's all up to us to handle our circumstances, we need to park our minds in the truth. Specifically, that God is sovereignly in control of every circumstance of your life. That God is bigger than any perceived difficulty in your life. That his grace is sufficient for you. That his power is made perfect even in your weakness. That God cares for you, that he is intimately involved in the affairs of your life, that all things work to the good of those who love God, that God has a perfect plan for your life, that God will never leave you nor forsake you, that God is faithful even when you are faithless. You see, when we get our eyes off our circumstances and onto God's glorious grace, it changes everything. Everything. I love the words of the psalmist. In Psalm chapter 73, verse 28, he says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. The nearness of God is good to me, and I have made the Lord my God my refuge. And so let me bring a question to bear out of that. Where is your refuge from worry, fear, and anxiety? Where do you run? Where do you go? Where do you hide? Where is your refuge? Where do your fears and your anxiety drive you? Do they drive you to deeper wells of worry? Or do they drive you to the promises of God? I want to encourage you to pray the promises of God. Not just in the middle of life's difficult circumstances, not just in the middle of trials and God's dark providence, but get in the habit of day in and day out praying the promises of God. Praying the word of God helps to saturate our hearts and our minds in the truth of God. Oh, how we need that. I want to encourage you to pray the promises of God. Another way to say that is this. Get in the habit, get in the practice of talking to God about your fears in light of his character. Talk to God about the things that you're fearful of. Talk to God about the things that worry you. Talk to God about the things that cause you anxiety in light of his character. Frame your prayers in light of who it is that you are talking to. If you don't couch your prayers concerning the things that worry you in light of God's character... Your prayers can become just a recital of the very things that you're worried about. Have you ever considered that your prayers can actually be anxiety-producing agents because there's not enough of God in them? No, all we're doing is closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and we're just reciting our fears. Again, completely without any calculation of God. If you're not careful, worry itself can overshadow everything else you pray. Proper prayer infuses the presence of God back into the scenario. State your worries. State the things that you are fearful of. State the things that cause you anxiety in light of who God is.
in light of his nature and his character and his attributes. Friends, I want to encourage you that Jesus has the answer for our fearful hearts. Write this down if you're taking notes. God knows what you need, therefore trust him. God knows what you need, therefore trust him. Look at verses 31 and 32 there in your Bible. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Knows that you need them all. God knows what you need. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him when things are going well and you don't feel like you have a care or a concern in the world. Trust Him when His countenance and His providence from a human perspective seems to be dark. Martin Luther once said that affliction is the Christian's theologian. Affliction or trial or suffering is the Christian's theologian. Luther penned these words. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Friends, I want to submit to you that it is right smack dab in the middle of your trials. It is square in the middle of your suffering and your pain and all the things that cause you to be fearful, all the things that lead you to worry, and all the things that riddle your heart with anxiety that God oftentimes uses affliction to grow us the most. God oftentimes uses difficult circumstances to chisel away the old man. God uses the things of this life, that that comes to us by living in a Genesis 3 fallen world to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so a question that I have for you is just as you thank God in times of relative ease, do you thank God for your trials, difficulties, and trying circumstances? Do you thank him? God knows what you need, and oftentimes God uses affliction as a megaphone to get our attention, to arrest our attention, to get our eyes off the things of this world and on to him. Here's another question for you to ask yourself. Do you learn through dark providences or simply seem to be relieved when they're over? Do you learn from God during dark providences or are you simply relieved when they're over? God knows what you need. Trust him. B, write this down. God has called you to a higher purpose. Therefore, seek him. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, when you seek first the kingdom of God, your focus is no longer on what you wear. It's no longer on what you eat. It's no longer on what you drink. When we fix our eyes on seeing Christ, there will scarcely be any room for concern about any lesser matter. In other words, if we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, the cares of the day will flee. They'll flee. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look, look deep in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Seek him. Seek him. See, God has designed you to live one day at a time. Therefore, obey him. God has designed you to live one day at a time. Obey him. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, do you see what Jesus does right here in this passage? Jesus personifies anxiety when he speaks about tomorrow being anxious for itself. I mean, anxiety is almost seen as a power, almost a person who takes a hold of you. Friends, fear has an active imagination. Fear has an active imagination. It can envision all sorts of possibilities and eventualities. And as a result of that active imagination, 
fear is a very convenient wave for Satan to ride upon. It's a very convenient wave for Satan to ride upon. You see, fear for tomorrow is overwhelming. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that fear over the things of tomorrow are overwhelming. And the reason behind that is because God has only given us grace sufficient for today. One of Satan's simplest tricks and most effective devices is to draw our attention onto things that we can absolutely do nothing about, that we cannot change, that we cannot alter, that we cannot modify. Satan would love for us to fix our eyes on those things, for those things to, confer, to, to absolutely uh, cause us to be in the spin cycle of life. I mean, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and worry and anxiousness and fear back and forth and back and forth. Because to the degree that you're in the spin cycle of fear and worry, your eyes aren't on King Jesus. It's one of Satan's simplest tricks and his most effective devices. There's nothing worse than being in a crisis that you think can't be fixed. If our hours are spent with thoughts of tomorrow's problems, which are not accessible today, and which we know but cannot touch with today's resources, then we will be doomed to worry. And worry, my friend, will wear you out. It'll absolutely wear you out. But our calling is to live in today. God has given us sufficient grace for today. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. God will give you grace for tomorrow, tomorrow. But he's given you grace for today, today. It's not that we're not able to think of tomorrow, but tomorrow must be consistently filed under future grace. Future grace. You see, the tide of confidence in God's sufficiency must wash out all worry and fear. As Spurgeon once said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it only empties today of its strength. How true is that? I mean, how true is that? Worry doesn't mean that you'll escape all your troubles. It just means that you'll be unfit to cope with them when they come. Friends, let me, let me bring it to a conclusion here and try to tie a bow on it at the end. Let me just confess right up front that we don't always understand the whys behind God's providence. God does not always tell us why he acts the way he acts, why he works the way he works. But we are called to trust him even when we do not know the answer to that question. One of the most difficult things to do when the road is rough or when the billows seem to be passing over us is to feel like God still loves us and is for us. But friends, hear me loud and hear me clear. We are not called to feel. We are called to believe. We're called to believe God, to take him at his word. We're not to measure God's love for us. We're not to measure God's concern for us. We're not to measure God's care for us by his providence. We are to measure God's love for us by his promise to us as demonstrated in the crushing of his son for us. If God has provided for your greatest need, Namely, the crushing of your sin on Calvary's cross through a perfectly sufficient Savior, then God will meet every lesser need that you have on your way to glory. It doesn't mean that God will give you everything that you want, and it doesn't mean that life will be free of fear. It doesn't mean that life will be fear, free of concern. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Jesus said to his disciples, You will have trouble in this world. But take heart or take courage. Put courage in yourself because I have overcome the world. But that courage doesn't come from trying to muster it up. That courage doesn't come from trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That courage does not come from trying to mitigate your circumstances or to alleviate your own sorrows. That courage comes from applying the word of God to your heart. Friends, when we cannot trace God's hand, we certainly can trust his heart. 
When we cannot trace God's hand, we can certainly trust his heart. When God's providences are dark and it is difficult to understand them, when you think, where am I going to get the money to pay for this? What if I lose my house? What if there aren't enough ventilators? What if I get sick? What if one of my children dies? What if I lose my job or my spouse loses their job? Oh, what if the floor has only begun to, to fall out of the economy? When every single one of those fears comes to surface and you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust His heart. Even when God's providences are dark and it is difficult to understand them. I'm reminded of the words of William Cowper who penned a beautiful, beautiful hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to these words that he penned. He encourages us, Judge not the Lord, or think not about the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. For behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Sweet will be the flower. You can trust Him. You can take refuge in in Him, He is near. Psalm 73. Friends, let me conclude this morning by just asking you one final question. What if your greatest fears actually come true? What if the things in life that you fear the most, what if the suffering that you most try to avoid, what if the trial that you so, so greatly try to escape actually comes to pass. What then? What then? Let me encourage you with the fact that the greatest deliverance that Jesus accomplishes for us is saving us from our greatest danger, namely God's holy and just wrath toward our sin. You see, for most of us, myself included, I must admit, that is not the fear that plagues us each day. That is not the thing that is on our heart and on our mind. We don't think about God's holy and just wrath, His settled hatred toward our sin as being life's greatest danger, as being the thing that I ought to fear the most outside of Christ. The fact that I don't fear that as being my greatest danger outside of Christ tells me something and it ought to tell you something about how just uh, disoriented our fears can be, how disordered our fears can be. Trusting God does not mean that our worst fears won't happen. That's not what trusting God means. It does not mean that our worst fears won't happen. Rather, trusting God means that what we should fear the most won't happen. Because Jesus stood in my place on Calvary's cross, because he bore the wrath reserved for me, because he died and rose again, and because he, at this very moment, stands in heaven interceding on my behalf, what should be my greatest fear, namely the wrath of God, is relieved. It's gone. It is no more. Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 8. He said, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul goes on with this glorious doxology, perhaps one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible when he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, friends, on the cross, Jesus calmed the only storm that could actually really sink us, and that's the storm of God's wrath and His judgment. And if Jesus has settled that storm, then he, the God-man, can be trusted to handle every other temporal storm that we may encounter. You may lose your job. You may get sick. You may lose all your retirement. Your children may die. It may all come true. But that's not your greatest fear and danger. 
in Jesus Christ the only storm that could truly sink us, the storm of God's wrath and judgment, has been dealt with. To voyage with Jesus is to voyage in peace in the midst of every storm. What worry and anxiety do you need to bring to the cross this morning, friends? What fear do you need to confess and repent of? What idols have you been feverishly trying to protect? Go back and look at verses 19 through 24. And look at those things of earth, those treasures that we typically lay up here on earth. Which of those idols do you need to relinquish? What God-given responsibilities have you been neglecting because of your fear and your anxiety? And God has called you to obey. How have you been neglecting that responsibility because of your fear and worry? Brothers and sisters, bring these things to the Lord with confidence. You can come to the throne of grace because there you will find mercy and help in your time of need. Brothers and sisters, these are turbulent times. These are tumultuous days. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, but we certainly know who is in control of tomorrow. Trust him. Take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word. What encouragement we find in your word. God, as we look at the sparrows, as we look at the lilies, who are not concerned about tomorrow, who aren't concerned about today, who aren't concerned about the moment because you take moment by moment care of them, we're just reminded how often we distrust you. God, I pray that you would help us by your grace to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that you would cause us to reorient our eyes off of our circumstances, that you, Jesus, would be greater that you, Jesus, would be weightier, that you, Jesus, would be mightier than any circumstance that might come to pass this side of eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that you have settled what should be our greatest fear in your substitutionary sacrificial death on Calvary's cross. Lord, you've not promised us living in this Genesis 3 fallen world. You've not promised Christians that we will be without trial, that we will be without tribulation, that we will be without suffering but you have promised to walk with us. You have told us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. God, we love you. We love you only because you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.